Morning, church. The reading this morning is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for your word. I thank you for this word that you have given us this day. I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. I just pray that we would just understand the, the amazement, the magnitude of that, that the, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the savior of our souls, that you desire us to know you, that you know us, that you desire a relationship with us, and that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. So I just pray that we would seek you first, that we'd seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and that we would just allow you to, to take control, that we would release all that we are carrying to you. I just thank you, Lord, for, for your promise, for this promise, and for this day. I pray that we would glorify you in your name and our worship of you this morning. Amen. Well, good morning. Office can be dismissed. We're going to continue in our series in 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter, uh, end of chapter 3 this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my friend Joshua Abedi, he is here in the front row. He either caught wind that we're going to release him from his provisional elder obligations in a couple weeks and he wants to stay, or he's just on sabbatical uh, and joined us for worship. So be praying for the Abedi family. They're enjoying uh, a summer off as their church has been gracious to give him uh, a season of rest uh, and don't follow him on social media because they're traveling the world and you'll probably be jealous. Uh, and then one more thing. Uh, I have some of these flyers. We had a, a Nets meeting this past Monday. They're having a banquet on June 5th, which is not tomorrow. It's the following Monday. would love to have as many of you join us. It's a free meal. I can hear what Nets is doing. I can drive the van if you all want to carpool together. Uh, you can talk to me after service. We'd love to uh, have you join us. So last Saturday, Kenzie had a swim meet at MIT. And I did not know this, but when we arrived, I found out that the mascot at MIT is a really scary mascot. It's an engineer. Yes, you all quivered. I saw that. 
I mean, if anything is going to put the fear into an opponent, it's an engineer. And I'm sorry, I see a couple heads nodding. For those who are engineers here, you're not scary. What would the mascot of the church be? Does the church's behavior match its identity? The identity that we get from Christ. Our world thinks the church is antiquated, bigoted, heretical, unloving. Sometimes our doctrine doesn't match and line up with our behavior. We don't want the world to fear us, so maybe we could be some engineers. But we do want the world to know who we are because of who we worship. And so Paul, he has good news for us this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue in our series this morning. We'll be considering proper behavior for God's people. Where gospel doctrine, as I've told you, it leads to a gospel culture. And Paul's formula is very simple. A true identity plus a true confession leads to true and proper living. So let me read our text. 1 Timothy 3, we'll pick it up in verse 14, and we'll go into the first paragraph of chapter 4. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created, or, sorry, I lost my spot, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe in Nova Truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful identity you give to us as your people. The great confession that we believe in the work of your son on our behalf. And God, I pray that you would help us in this time to worship you for all that you are and all that you do and you would help us to live and behave properly as a church as a people of God in the world in which we live for our joy but most importantly for your glory and we pray this all in Jesus name amen
So our formula, again, is our identity, our true identity plus our true confession will lead us to a true way of living, proper behavior. And so let's start with our identity. You'll see in the text that this is anchored. Our identity is anchored in doctrine. And Paul gives his purpose for writing, a reminder in light of who we are. Again, he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Timothy, help this church to be proper. But if I delay, I want you to act in a certain way, in light of your identity, in light of who you are. And so Paul gives Timothy four things, four key words, four ideas of what our identity is like. A household, a church, a pillar, and a buttress. So first, we are a household. It's no accident that this comes right after the qualifications of elders and deacons that we saw last week of proper leaders in the church who were to manage their households well. Proper leader, leaders help us to be a proper household ourselves. We're God's house, or so, sorry. We are a family. We are intentionally unified around the truths of our gospel doctrine, as we've seen, as we've gone through 1 Timothy. Our identity then drives our behavior. And a proper church is identified by that gospel culture. And so, for those of you who have kids, you, you know what I'm about to say. Every kid tests the waters, right? When you call down the hall, they're probably thinking in their minds, because we all did the same thing, do I really need to go? Do I really need to be honest with mom and dad when they ask me, why are you laughing? When they ask me what took place. Well, in our family, we have some rules. Sellers, we don't lie. Sellers, we work hard. Sellers, we persevere. Sellers, we win in the games that we play, which is why we don't play board games as a family because there's five people who are always angry at the end of the night. Except for Kristen. <laughs> First, friends, the church is a family. We're brothers and sisters. We are for each other. We tell our kids all the time, you will be brothers and sisters forever. So act as such. We love each other. We are for each other. Paul uses language to the Thessalonian church as a father and a mother, how they nurture. He nurtured the church I think it's important to remember that Paul uses language of a family first. Not a club, not an organization, not a 501c3. Friends, we are a family. Second, he says we are a church of a living God. We're not the building. We're the people who gather as the church. We just so happen to gather here on a Sunday morning. Josh has a group that meets up in Concord on a Sunday morning. We have our brothers and sisters who meet in East Randolph and many other churches, but we are a church that gathers here. We saw that with Peter, right? The, the people of God are unified and are united around a doctrine. Not Peter himself, as the Roman Catholic Church would say, but Peter's confession. That which he confessed as truth, Jesus said, he will build his church on that. And the church is alive because, as the text says, our God is alive. 
We don't follow a dead man. He is no longer in that grave. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. We are following a risen Savior. So we're a family. We're a people who belong to the risen Lord, who died for you and for me. And the word church is found in Scripture, translated as assembly or fellowship. And there is no such thing, friends, as a Lone Ranger Christian. We are meant to live this Christian life together as a body of believers, as a family. Not only does a family signify more than one person, so does the assembly, the church of God's people. We are in this together. Paul wants Timothy and this church to remember that. And our identity starts to connect with our actions. He uses two words, a pillar and a buttress. And just like some may conclude that an identity is unhealthy at, of churches at times based on what they do, Paul says our identity is grounded in truth. We're a pillar, we're a buttress of absolute truth of this, the Bible. We're a people of truth that hold up truth and we stand upon truth. And so third, we're a pillar. A pillar supports the roof. It's the Greek word, and we're going to have a little lesson, stoulos. What do you think the English word that we get stoulos from that holds something up? Stool, thank you. You learned some Greek today. A stool supports your butt when you sit down. My parents were over. They found the stool, the chair in our house that doesn't hold you up, and we didn't tell them that, and so it broke. It's called wisdom. A pillar is supposed to hold something up. The church's identity is our basis for our behavior, holding up truth. At the same time, have you ever put a stool, especially a metal one, in some mud? What happens? It sinks. So forth, we're also a buttress. A buttress is the foundation of the building. It's what the pillar stands on. And so we stand on truth as much as we uphold the truth. Jesus' words, on this rock, I will build my true church. That rock is truth. I'm always surprised as I drive around, especially when we first moved here, of some of the old hundred-year-old homes in Vermont. They are sitting on rocks. In California, because we have earthquakes, you have concrete and rebar, and the house is bolted to the foundation so that an earthquake happens, it doesn't move. But here, these massive stones are laid painstakingly, perfectly to withstand the weather, the ice and the water going in. And it amazes me every time I see these homes that just are still standing after hundreds of years. Posts and beams, they are set on these stones. And that post and beam is holding up a roof. And what happens if the foundation or the roof fails around here? Takes only a little bit of snow, right? Either the whole foundation goes or the roof goes and eventually the whole house is torn down. So some scholars believe that this is the most significant phrase in the pastoral epistles because our identity matters. Paul is combating, as we've seen over and over again, the Ephesian church, the heresy that has been infiltrating this people of God. And so friends, the church has a true identity as a family, as a gathering, known for upholding and also standing upon truth. 
Many of you have probably done some ancestry research, especially those who don't live in Vermont, because we know that those who are from Vermont know where their ancestry is from. But my grandfather used to get so upset at my grandmother. She would say, well, you're Mayan, from Mayan descent. And he would be adamant, we are not Mayan. Chris and I would just die laughing. We are Aztec. Okay, he was adamant about that and similar to people from New England and Vermont. It's important, right, where we come from. But more important than where we are born is how we are born again by the Holy Spirit. Much more important than where we gather in a church building is who we are as we gather, as a body of believers, as a church. And our identity granted and established by the living God matters because from our identity, we uphold and stand upon the truth that we believe as his people. And so we have a true identity. We also have a true confession, that next section. And both are needed in Paul's recipe for proper behavior. In verse 16, our confession, he says, is the mystery of godliness. Where a gospel doctrine, again, transforms us to have a gospel culture. And mysteries in the Bible are often something that was at one time hidden. That's now been made known and manifest. A mystery is like a shadow, right? You don't maybe know what's causing the shadow, but you can see that there is something there. You can't touch the shadow. Christ is the mystery of godliness. He is that which was pointing to our holiness. And so anticipated in the Old Testament, Christ is now manifested in the Gospels, and it's Him who gives us our new identity. And He is the one that we confess. Let me read the confession again. He, speaking of Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so these six statements of Paul, they relate to the person and work of Jesus. And we confess these to be true as God's people. We just sang, we believe. That song is based off the Apostles' Creed. Much of this confession or early creed of the early church has some of the similar language. And I asked to play that song to prepare our hearts to hear this message. So first we have the incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh. The second member of the Trinity who has always existed for all eternity, fully God, took on flesh. Eternally existing, he added to his divinity humanity, conceived of the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, sinless, fully God and fully man. We confess the incarnation. We also confess the resurrection, says vindicated by the Spirit, having lived a perfect life, a life without sin. He was crucified and buried. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, if you want to look at it, he came into the world to save sinners. And so he was buried. He died. He was buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. We confess the resurrection. We also confess the ascension seen by angels. In Acts 1.10, Jesus ascended into heaven and two men, men in white robes, appeared to him or appeared to the disciples. Those were angels that were witnessing his ascension. We confess the ascension. 
We also confess the proclamation proclaimed among the nations that we obey the great commission, that we go and make disciples of all nations. We baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and we teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. We confess our proclamation of the gospel. We also confess the belief we be, he was believed on in the world by you and by me, by Christians around the world. As the gospel goes out, it is effective. It meets its intended outcome, intended purpose of belief for those whom Jesus died for when he gives them the gift of faith to believe in him. We confess our belief, the effectiveness of the gospel and others to believe. And then finally, we confess the exaltation taken up in glory. Having given, accomplished all that the Father has given him to do, he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This ancient creed of the early church is the mystery of godliness. This is the basics of the Christian life, of what we rest our lives on, what gives us our identity, the truth that we believe. And so in summary, we confess the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel that gives us our identity. It's the gospel that is our confession. But not everyone believes that. Especially Satan hates that message. Satan hates God's people. He hates as we become more like Jesus. And chapter 4, I think, significantly connects to what we just read. So disregard chapter numbers and verse numbers. It, I think it is all part of what Paul wants for us this morning. Let me read it. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. You see that connection of truth? Our true identity in Christ and our true confession of Christ protects us from falsehood, from the lies of our enemy. After a triumphant celebration, Paul addresses the demonic false teaching plaguing this church in Ephesus. This whole letter is confronting this spiritual battle taking place. And so grounded in gospel doctrine, they promote a gospel culture established with that identity, resting in the confession. The Spirit of God gives the church a warning. In later times, be prepared, Timothy. In later times, those are the times that we live in today. Be prepared for the onslaught of false teaching. Gathering with God's people, even confessing the gospel doesn't guarantee salvation. Some of you may not be a Christian here today, and that's okay, but I pray that that changes. Our knowledge must turn into belief. In other words, as one commentator said, profession is not possession. And false teachers take advantage of this. Demonically influenced, false teachers continue Satan's work in the garden. I'll just give you a reminder from Genesis 3. The serpent said, did God actually say? 
You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Satan, he questions God's goodness. He wants you to be happy, Eve. Why would you not do what you wanted to do? God said, don't eat. But Eve says, don't touch. Adding to or taking away from God's word is false teaching. Satan is crafty. But he doesn't need to be creative because he's been doing the same thing for generation after generation and he still does it today. We all fall for the same lies. Hypocritical liars know what is wrong, claiming to be Christian and false doctrine comes bearing Satan's brand of deception in the garden. Paul said that this comes from a seared conscience that blinds us as God's people. And this is not searing like an outside of a steak, perfectly moist and juicy when you eat it. Maybe some of you will have some this weekend. This is a well-done steak, very dead steak. The Greek word here is cauterizo, where we get our English cauterize. It's burning with a hot, searing to a crisp, hot iron searing to a crisp, no longer being able to be used for its intended function. Nobody likes steaks like that. Well, maybe some of you do. People who eat like steaks like that, they're kind of weird. A seared conscience is hearted and useless to consider the lies that the enemy continually throws at us. And Paul gives two examples that we find in Genesis, marriage and food. False teachers say don't get married, but God said to Adam in Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Abstaining from marriage takes away from God's command to Adam and Eve. God didn't say don't eat all fruit. He said don't eat fruit from a specific tree. Abstaining from all food would be adding to God's command. You see what is happening in this Ephesian church? God's intention for marriage is to be fruitful and to multiply to God, to enjoy God's good gift to men and women in the covenant of marriage. And God's intention for food is for sustenance, and we can enjoy it. But without food, we'll die eventually. Without marriage, society will collapse. You can see that that's happening in our world today. Satan's strategy is to give us temptation, that we would fall into that. And we are just as susceptible as Adam and Eve and also this Ephesian church. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Yes, God does want you to be happy, but true happiness comes from our true identity, based on our true confession, based on what we see in God's word. And so we see the antithesis to this proper leadership that we saw last week in these false teachers. And Paul counters the bad teaching with God's word. For everything created by God is good, it says, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Friends, an abundant life 
as Jesus has given to you is found in God's word and God's word alone. Nothing else will satisfy you. And so a gospel doctrine grounded in our true identity and true confession is good. So we must know our Bibles to know what is false. Most of the problems, maybe all of them, in churches today are a result of ignorance of the Bible or just blatant rejection of what we see in the Scriptures. Paul told the Ephesian church in this letter, when you are anchored in the word, you get tossed, or sorry, Paul told the Ephesian church in his first letter to this church, if you aren't anchored in the word, you're tossed around like a little ship and dinghy on open waters, or you're blown away like dust on a table. And so friends, we need to anchor ourselves in God's word as we see that this problem has been plaguing this Ephesian church for 20, 30 years now. Not which is good is made holy by God's word, where God speaks to us. But holiness also comes from responding to God in prayer. See, the communication goes both ways. As God speaks to us in his word, we also speak to him in prayer. And so as we close out our time, we're going to go back up the ladder that we just went down. So first, God's word guides us to holiness. When we hear something new, our first response should always be, but what does the Bible say? Like Adam should have been there for his wife, leading her. Yeah, Eve, God didn't say what you responded with, so don't do it. Did God design things a certain way? Did he command me to live in a certain way as directed in his word? Sometimes it's not always clear, and so we can go to God with prayer. We can ask him to help us. It's not always clear who I should marry. Should I take that job? Should I serve in that specific way? We have thousands of decisions all day, every day, that we make. And the Spirit speaks to us in the Word, and the Spirit also doesn't contradict the Word. And there is such a thing as objective evil and objective good in our world. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so, friends, we must go to God's Word for guidance. Going to God's word for guidance is a better response than doing nothing like Adam did in the garden. The Spirit warns us. Jesus gives us a model for prayer. He said at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So pray that prayer. And maybe it's just a simple prayer. God, help me. And so let's make the Bible our guide, a lamp for our feet. Let's ask God for help, and let's receive the help that he gives us in his word. Second, if we fail, we're going back up the ladder. Remember your confession. Remember the salvation that Jesus provides for you and for me. The Spirit warns us, right? Don't deviate from the word. But if you fail, which we all will, there's grace Slight deviations eventually will lead to significant drift from biblical orthodox Christianity. And our confession acknowledges our forgiveness. And in light of our confession, by the grace of God, we then respond by fleeing our sin. 
doesn't give us license to keep sinning like Paul would deal with this interlocutor, this guy that he wanted to debate in Romans chapter 6. That's why I remind us of the gospel every single Sunday. It's because I need reminders, and I know you need reminders. We all need reminders of the salvation that God has earned for us in the gift of His Son. And so we put forth effort to obey God because of the salvation that God has already earned for us. The confession is our anchor. Tim Keller, an influential pastor, many of you probably know him, he passed away last week, and he said this, no family will always be there. No talent will always be there. Your looks certainly will not always be there. Whatever it is that you put your anchor down into, if it's a circumstance, it's like putting it into the water. Everything but the promise of God is water. And so we hold fast to our confession. When we miss the mark, when we sin against the Holy God, we must remember our confession. We confess, we repent, we bring a brother or sister in and the family that we're part of to work out our own salvation with fearing, trembling, knowing that it is God who has worked within us. And for those who believe, our identity remains. And we need reminders of that too. As we constantly battle, you know, I'm just not good enough. God doesn't love me. How could I be part of his family? Because we remember Jesus' identity first. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. His identity is truth. And so we, as God's people, can be people of truth. And so third, we live in light of our true identity. Our identity is in how we look, who we're friends with, how influential we can be, how much money we have, where we work, where we live, whatever it is for you. Our true identity is in God and what He calls us, His beloved son and daughter, in whom I'm well pleased for those who believe. He is truth, and so we become, and we are people of truth. And so we uphold truth, and we stand upon truth. We rest in who God tells us we are by believing the confession. The Bible guides us. The confession saves us, and our identity grounds us. And Jesus' identity is true. We've seen that his confession is true. And that's why Paul keeps reminding this church of trustworthy sayings, right? We saw one in chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And proper leaders are to lead the church of God's people. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And next week we will see another trustworthy trustworthy saying, the third one in this letter, godliness is of utmost value. So if you've never identified yourself with God's people, if you've never believed and confessed that you do believe this confession, the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, today could be a good day. It should be a good day. Let me encourage you, confess and believe and become part of God's family. We'd love to talk to you about that. For those who do believe, let me remind each other 
we remind each other of our identity often. We're a people of God. We're a family. As we gather, we remind each other of our confession. That's why every time someone gets up here to preach or teach on a Wednesday night, we share and we preach the gospel because we all need reminders of that. And it's with the church that we withstand the assaults and the temptations of the enemy together. I saw this yesterday. I was driving home and I was looking at social media, of course. It's a good reminder when we're tempted to not participate with the family of God. It says, staying home to watch church is like staying home to watch a family member's wedding and keeping your gift with you at home. Your presence, your solidarity, your love, your hugs, your eye contact, your solidarity in a wedding is necessary. It is necessary for God's people to be here together. We don't gather passively to receive something like a weekly injection to just get us through six more days. We are embodied in this gathering, celebrating our identity, confessing our beliefs, standing against a common flow, foe while we stand on the truth of the scripture and we uphold the truth of the scripture. And we all lose out when even one person doesn't come together. And so does that person lose out when we don't get to invest in that person. A Christian with a, not being part of a church is a dangerous place. It's an oxymoron biblically. We're susceptible to wolves snatching up sheep, even if it's just for one day. I don't know what to call the mascot of the word world, but I do know what to call the mascot of the church. In Acts 11:26, the people of God were first called Christians. That's our identity. As we sang this morning, people of the risen king. That's our true identity. He's our true confession. And so together, let's rest in our true identity. Together, let's confess that belief, even in the songs that we sing as we gather again next Sunday or this coming Wednesday, as we pray, as we read the scripture. Let's behave like a proper church. Later today, probably tomorrow, uh, more this week, you'll be tempted with, did God really say? And the answer is, if it's in the word, he did. And it's good for you to obey it to listen to it and to follow it. And so, he is good. He wants you to be happy. But true happiness is found in the gospel and believing and following the word of God. And so a proper ch church behaves according to the scripture, friends, and that is our deepest joy. Would you pray with me as we invite the music team to come back up? Father, we thank you that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God, we confess that we believe that he is our Savior. And God, we ask that you would help us in our unbelief by the power of your Spirit. As, as Cammie prayed earlier, your word that is hidden in our heart, God, would you use it so that we might not sin against you. 
God, would you help us to be this proper church described by your Apostle Paul? God, would we love one another, encourage one another, exhort and rebuke one another as necessary? But most importantly, we would love each other so much to, to fight for each other's holiness, to obey you, and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, we thank you, we praise you, and we seek to lift up our voice loudly to sing of how great you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?